Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to Decoding Westworld, an unofficial recap podcast about the HBO original series Westworld. I'm David Chen. I'm Joanna Robinson. Welcome to the show. What we do here on this podcast is we recap every episode of the show. We dive in-depth into everything that happened, uh, but we don't spoil anything from future week's episodes that includes anything on the next time on preview for the show. You can find more episodes of this podcast at decodingwestworld.com. You can also email us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. This week, we'll be discussing Season 2, Episode 8, Kiksuya. Season 2, Episode 8 is what we'll be discussing on today's episode of Decoding Westworld. Uh, And usually we like to begin each week with emails from listeners. Uh, And so we got quite a bunch of emails from from listeners this last week. Um, But uh, Joanna, there's one that you wanted to mention. I don't think we're going to read the whole thing. Uh, But we got an email from Elizabeth that we thought was worth mentioning. Yeah, Yeah, we got like a beautiful in-depth very scientific with like bullet points and subheadings email uh, from Elizabeth. Uh, you know, she's, she's a graduate student in social psychology and she wanted to respond to some of the revelations we got in last week's episode about the purpose of Westworld or the greater park as a way to, as they put it, decode the guests. And she took some uh, exception to the idea of the, the experiment, the Delos experiment, which is to use the guests as a constant. Oh no, the hosts as the constant and the guests as the variable, right? And so because Dolores is on her little loop, she's the constant. And to see how the various guests respond to her is to get information about uh, their cognition or their consciousness. Um, she, she wrote this really long email about it. I will read this, this part where she talks about the ideal design. She says, so to do what Delo slash Ford is trying to do, you actually want the guests to serve as their own controls and the situation, including the host to vary. William as a frequent guest is a great example for this. Say he saw Dolores for the first time and picked the milk can. That gives us a nice baseline measurement for his behavior. Then using the host as variables, we can test a question about who William is. Like, is William an altruistic person? Or is there an alternative explanation for this behavior, such as him being uniquely attracted to Dolores? Or ha- or perhaps he's only 
altruistic when it comes to people who look innocent. So next step could be to have William walk by a drowning host child and see whether he intervenes. Then have him encounter a grown man host begging for food, etc. Countless tests like these could get you much closer to kernels of truth about who an individual person is. We call this a within-person repeated measures design. It's the only way I can think of to get information about an individual's unique person-by-situation interaction. Um, and then she goes on to sort of talk a little bit more about uh, what was wrong with Ford's experiment. I guess I'll, I'll just hit a few uh, more bullet points that she has at the bottom. She says... These are things that bother her, she says, unless we get a good ex- explanation later. She says, to do fidelity testing of a human in cradle-like simulation based upon their behavior in the park, wouldn't you also need to have simulations of the other guests in there? Like, to test young William, you need a Logan in your sim. Isn't that necessarily recursive? How does the DNA play in other than helping them create new bodies? If that's important, uh, we should keep in mind that they only have DNA from guests who have sex with hosts, which must, must exclude a hefty number of guests, uh, for example, the children. Uh, and then this is this is something that you and I have talked about before. It says no copy of a guest would have any of their memories other than, I guess, what they could inject about their memories at Westworld. And aren't someone's memories an enormous part of consciousness identity? Um, the only thing I think I can redress here for Elizabeth right now is this notion of DNA. Uh, we did see in this season them specifically swabbing sort of the pubic region of a host and that, that was the implications of their DNA gathering from, from a sexual encounter. But the Delos <laughs> bylaws or whatever, the Delos clause uh, release that you sign, uh, according to what's posted on, on HBO, has a much broader definition of what is acceptable DNA to collect. So it's like hair that falls out, skin that falls off, like any number of things they are without well within their rights to collect. So it's not just limited to sexual encounters. Well, Joanna, I think the real take-home message from uh, this email from Elizabeth is there are many things you should not trust Westworld slash Delos to do. Like, you should not follow their advice. Uh, One of them is how to correctly secure a major compound that has lots of robots around uh, your extremely rich guests. Another one is experimental design. So, uh, basically, the way that they're talking about experimental design needs a few tweaks, right? Do you agree on that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in any case, keep your emails coming into decodingwestworld.gmail.com. And thanks to Elizabeth for that email about uh, how she would do an, uh, an ideal experimental design in Westworld. Uh, okay. So, Joanna, why don't we dive into this week's episode, which is creating a lot of buzz online. And uh, we're, we're not going to do like a regular uh, recap episode this week, I think, because... Uh, This is a really atypical episode of Westworld. I would say uh, the vast majority of it is just a single character's plotline. And so uh, rather than go scene by scene, I think uh, we're going to give you an overall summary and uh, and then talk about some of the major uh, revelations that occurred during the episode uh, before diving into how this episode fits in with the broader narrative of the series. So uh, let's start talking about uh, about this episode. Season 2, Episode 8, Kiksuya. And uh, this episode essentially is about uh, Zon McLarnan's character, uh, Akichita. And you kind of learn about the origin of uh, you know all the stuff that Ghost Nation is currently doing. And you kind of see it from this character's perspective uh, throughout virtually the entire episode. 
Uh, let's talk about overall thoughts on the episode. Jonah Robinson, what did you think of season two, episode eight? Uh, you already know that I love this episode. And um, I think, you know, as disoriented and frustrated as we were feeling um, in at the end of episode six, I believe it was, I am over the moon at the end of episode eight because not that this redeems every uh, misstep maybe of, of season two and season one, um, but it it unlocks a potential that Westworld has for storytelling that I am hugely excited about. Um, I don't think we'll ever really, really fully shake the serialized storytelling um, that they want to do in terms of like the mystery box and Dolores and all of that. But I think between this and Akane no Mai and even the, um, the Jim Dallas episode that preceded Akane no Mai, um, these episodes sort of, almost entirely hinged on a specific character as character pieces uh, really have worked beautifully. And if Westworld wants to like feel its oats in season three and even go further uh, down the rabbit hole of just doing these sort of singular, almost anthology like yeah, storytelling like episodes. Anthology series. Yeah. 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 I would be really into it. Um, so that's, I, I loved this episode. I, I thought it was a great, episode uh definitely my favorite episode of season two thus far uh the only episode of of season two where i've felt genuinely moved you know to tears uh because of how beautiful the episode was everything felt like it was firing uh on all cylinders i'm talking about uh not just the script but the performances and also the production design uh and just kind of building this entire uh world uh, and and kind of recontextualizing it in the narrative of Akichita, it uh, it was really like inventive uh, and just beautifully done. So I am, am a huge fan of this episode, and I think um, many people have said it's one of their favorite Westworld episodes ever. Um, so uh, right off the top, like let's just be really clear that this is a fantastic episode, and. I'll dive into some of the critiques about the episode later on, <laughs> um, but we can, you know, just st- start by saying, like, I-, I think this is a towering achievement in TV episode making, and uh, <laughs> I think it should be, you know, regarded as such by uh, everyone. Yeah. So, so I did I did I sufficiently immunize myself, Joanna? From nope, uh, people are okay. still only going to hear the negative. Oh, they're only hear the negative things, even though we'll spend like eighty percent of the episode commenting yeah. the episode. Okay. Um, Okay. It is in their nature. Dave it's Jones. in their nature. No, that's fair <laughs> enough. That's fair enough. Okay. So, Joanna, we found out a lot of things about certain characters uh, in the course of this episode. One of the things we found out is that uh, Akichita, uh, who kind of represents the uh, Ghost Nation in the show, he's kind of the front person for the Ghost Nation, uh, he has been around since uh, the early days of the park, right? Uh, decades ago in the Wyatt and Arnold days. And in fact, we see him stumbling upon the massacre of uh, uh, of that town when Wyatt slash Dolores wanders in and then ends up killing Arnold. Um, so is this an explanation that you kind of... Uh, like? like I, I think we both suspected that Ghost Nation was not going to be a menacing evil force in the show like the, right, right. it's too obvious like that, that is too obvious a thing for the show to to go to that but like um did you anticipate that like you know this uh, character's roots ran way back to the early uh ages of delos and westworld 
I, I mean, I, I, I had the sense that he was awake. You know, we got we got a lot of information in season one about Ghost Nation being aware of things. Um, Hector talks to Maeve about sort of Ghost Nation talking about people walking between worlds and all this sort of stuff. Like we know that a Ghost Nation child in season one had like a carved doll of the Delos Tech. So w- we knew that they were aware. I didn't expect him to show up like at for the massacre where for where Arnold dies like right. that, you know, that was yes. Earlier than I expected, I guess. Yeah. 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 So, uh, that was a, a surprise. And then he stumbles upon the maze. Now, this is one of those episodes that I feel in many ways, uh, you know, in many ways makes previous episodes make more sense and therefore uh-huh. become yeah. better. Um, and in some ways makes previous episodes make less sense, but we'll get into that later. But one of the ways it makes episodes make more sense is uh, that, you know, there, there's many scenes where you see the maze carved in things all over the place, all over the park. We see a flashback where Maeve's daughter has a rock with the maze and, you know, explains that uh, they're being watched and taken care of by Ghost Nation. There's a sequence in season one, I think, where Maeve brings her daughter, uh, like she's running away and she kind of collapses in this maze that's been carved into sand, right, in front of her house. And I always thought that was kind of silly because it's like, Hey, the ma- like what possible explanation could there be for the maze being everywhere like this in the way that it's depicted you know in the show? Right. It it must be some kind of metaphorical maze that May fell into because otherwise it's absolutely ridiculous that there's an actual literal maze in front of her house. Right. But guess what? Uh this episode, <laughs> you know, shut up all those criticisms. I think it actually does a really good good job of explaining, hey, it's cuz this guy saw the maze, became obsessed with it. It, like, messed with his programming, and uh, then just he just started carving it everywhere, right? Started, like, you know, putting it in, you know, rocks and sand and dirt and everywhere. Uh, and that's really interesting, right? And, and kind of explains why the maze shows up all, all over the place. Did you buy this explanation? What did you think of it? Did you feel like it was a clever way? Did you feel like they, like, retconned it, like, reverse-engineered it back in? Or, uh, like, overall thoughts on this development? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think this one works very well. I think there are other things where the puzzle pieces don't a hundred percent align, but I think this, um, aligns pretty well. And, um, it, it was always curious to me cause like, obviously like Arnold is the originator of the maze. Um, but he didn't carve it everywhere. Like he died. He's not putting in sand and stuff like that. He's right. dead. Ford. Yeah. Maybe encouraged the maze to spread right at the end but for most of the time that the park was open ford wasn't working uh in concert with arnold's intentions you know to wake the host that was sort of like a late in life thing that he came to and he was sort of as as puzzled and surprised in season one to see some of that may stuff so yeah i was wondering where all that may stuff came from uh and it, i think this explanation works beautifully i think the scalp thing Still doesn't make sense to me. So, so what, <laughs> is, what is the scalp thing as you understand it, uh, as it's conveyed in this episode? As Akijita like wakes up his uh, fellow Ghost Nation members of Ghost Nation, um, you know he he sort of tells them about the ways in which um, the you know the ghosts as they call them the other the other people um, have kept this information from them, hidden it from them. And so his second in command says, like, hide it from them. And so he appears to take 
that man's scalp off and like carve the maze inside the, his scalp. But the question is, then what? Does he then <laughs> sew it back on? And then would everyone be walking around with stitches? Like what's that's that's right, when they have found the yeah. maze in the scalp and been like, hey, we should get rid of this really weird thing. Like the text, I mean. Right, right. Like, I mean, when they examine them, they open up the top of their heads every time is what yeah. we found out. So I, I like I don't really understand um, that. But I don't I'm not mad about it. I feel like they tried. Yeah, I mean, it, like, it, no. it felt like yeah. they had this cool maze imagery in season one. And they're like, we need we need an interesting way to explain this. And they came up with a fairly interesting way that works for a lot of it, but not everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And something we should say um, is that – so in season one, episode one, there's this character, Kissy, played by um, the actor Eddie Rouse, I believe is his name. Um, and he you know, he gets scalped by the Man in Black in, in the first episode. And that's where the Man in Black finds the maze. Um, that actor dies – died. The real actor died after shooting the pilot. And Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy said that they like didn't recast him sort of out of honor to him, but they had like a whole arc plan for him. Yeah. And he was like, that was a native American character. So, and and we know that they had to like stop and rewrite sort of scramble and rewrite season one. And some, a listener suggested to me that maybe the Lawrence character was kind of retconned into, cause Clifton Collins Jr. was cast after the pilot so maybe the Lawrence character sort of retconned in to replace the Kissy character. Yeah, didn't they also really... like reshoot the pilot as well? If I recall correctly, like parts parts yeah, of certainly parts of it, yeah. like like a long time after they had shot the original yeah. version of it. Yeah, absolutely. So I I don't know how much that actor passing away sadly um, sort of stymied some of their plans for Ghost Nation in season one, mm. and it feels like they kind of tabled it for season two. And so some of this might be retconned in, but some of this might be stuff that they always intended to do. They just had to press pause on it. So that's, that's an interesting like behind the scenes reason why it it might, it might have happened this way. The sculpting, I mean, it doesn't really bother me, you know? Um, I think it's a little silly, but it doesn't like stick out to me as something egregious. So agreed. Agreed. And, and, but one thing I like about it is that, the the only reason you would find the maze all over the park is if someone was obsessed with carving it everywhere, right? Like, yeah. And so the idea that this, like, when they show the actors on McLaren like, car, you know, like drawing it all the time, like, and like people are like bothered by how much it's he's drawing, perturbing. yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, perturbing, yeah. you know, like, and th- those are the only circumstances under which you'd be able to, like, the the maze would be that ubiquitous. So I like that that was yeah. the explanation for that. I agree. You mentioned William and the Man in Black, and we see that he didn't die uh, in this episode. In, you know, the last time we saw him, uh, he kind of dragged himself towards the water. A lot of uh, people wrote in or tweeted at us speculating that uh, he's not dead because we've already seen that uh, they have ways of repairing extremely fatal wo- or, or near fatal wounds in this show. Right, so they have that like laser beam or whatever they can put on wounds and stuff like that. So, so I, I don't think anyone really believed that William and the Man in Black was dead. Um, no, but I mean, he t- he did take a lot of bullets. <laughs> like, it's it's. Uh, I think people, you know, because there's this theory that he's a host. 
I I don't ascribe to that theory, but I would I would not blame anyone who believes that theory to like keep believing it. This right, this episode, episode definitely put know? a lot of gas in the William is a host tank. Yeah, exactly. Right, because yeah. he's he seems to have been shot like four times, lost a lot of blood, and he's still yeah. alive. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you'd have to disregard some things for that to be true, right? Like, theoretically, wouldn't Maeve know that he was a host? Or is he, like, some kind of host with different coding than, you know, the, the other people? I mean, I saying? feel like, like Westworld could have anything up their sleeves when it comes to that. They could be right. like, he's actually half human, half host. Yeah, diaper, you know what I mean? he's a super host. That's yeah, why yeah, Maeve didn't uh, just power him down or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. And all of a sudden, we're watching Underworld, and we don't know, but it's great. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of older characters, uh, we also saw a little bit of Logan this episode. Quite a shock, I thought, uh, to see him. Uh, the last we saw of Logan in season one, I want to say episode nine or ten, uh-huh. uh, William had put him on a horse and was like, you know what? I think uh, your dad's going to want a different person who's more responsible for run this company. And he kind of slaps this horse that Logan's on and sends him off into the distance. Uh, and then we find out where that is. Uh, apparently the middle of nowhere and Logan has become completely delirious as a result. Right. 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 And so we see an early version of Akichita uh, happen upon Logan. Um, other than like that, that was basically where I thought Logan would end up, you know, like that he would be delirious and would lose trust somehow like that, that would somehow drive uh, Jim Dallas to lose trust in him. Do you feel like the, anything else I missed about the Logan thing? Like, was there anything else significant about Logan appearing in this episode? I mean, what I will say is that I think um, I think it's a very satisfactory way to um, revisit the Logan thing because I think a lot of people did. Ha- I mean, I agree with you. Uh, this is basically what I assumed happened to Logan, but since they didn't say it, people are feeling as unsatisfied as they felt when they didn't know what happened to Stubbs or you know um, Elsie and stuff like that. And so I think people wanted this resolution, and the fact that they hooked that resolution to um you know they hooked that resolution to the like more information more triggering for akichita i thought was really effective yeah yeah it was it was cool to see him and and it's it's finally i mean one of the great things about this episode and i'll say more about this later is that uh there's very few twists right it it all is like it starts in the present day, but then it's like this character narrating himself through time uh, in basically a straight line, pretty much. And so you kind of get to see like how all these things we've seen in the series up till now like relate to this character's development, right? Well, oh, that was thirty years ago. Oh, that was before it opened. You know, like all these things. It kind of like puts it all into like one single timeline. Um, and I, I thought that. That was a really great way it served the broader story of the show. Um, so, anyway, cool to see Logan again. Cool to see the aftermath of that. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, he, he basically seems to have gone insane, and then uh, that's what happened to him. So, uh, at least temporarily, until he got hooked on you know, future heroin and then, um, and then maybe died from it? We don't know. Uh, <laughs> so... I think it's... He's dead. I he's honestly dead. think this is the. I think this is the last we'll see of Logan. The person who has said to me, uh, yep. they are not dead unless yep. you see their body hit the floor." Yep. yep, is telling me Logan's dead. Yep. Even though we don't see his body hit the floor. 
Because why would them? Why would William lie in that moment? Why would the Man in Black lie in that moment? That's the thing. Oh, because he wants to inflict massive pain on Jim Delos, probably even robot Jim Delos. Right? Uh, no, I, I, I disagree. <laughs> okay, okay, all right, all right. Um, so, all right, let's uh, let's move on. So, uh, let's let's say one one thing about this whole Akichita thing, uh, and and how this narration unfolds. Two, two things I want to say about it that are really uh, admirable and brilliant. One is uh, that he speaks uh, a lot of his lines in the uh, Lakota language, if I'm not mistaken, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, that's what Zon McLaren's uh, uh, ethnicity actually is. And uh, that is just like an, an amazing thing for this high-profile show on a premium cable network to have an episode where a huge percentage of the language spoken uh, is in Lakota. Uh, I think only like 6,000 people in the world speak Lakota at this point. And so uh, it is just just amazing that they like went through with it all the way. They didn't have to do it that way. You know, they could have had him speak in English, which he does intermittently throughout the episode. Um, but they decided to j- just like you know, do their homework uh, just the logistics of even making it happen, I think, are uh, impressive. And so I think the way that they decided to tell the story and the language that they used uh, is just something worth noting. I um, I spoke to Zon McLaren for the other Westworld podcast that I do, still watching Westworld, and he told me that his mom his mom speaks Lakota. He like he didn't really speak Lakota, but his mom speaks Lakota, so she helped him. And then they hired a consultant whose name escapes me right now, but a native woman to help him. Uh, that it took him eight hours to record the um, voiceover, and also interestingly that he didn't have the voiceover when he shot the episode. Mm. So he's just wandering around a lot of the episode and they didn't really tell him like what he would be saying as those scenes would be playing out, you know? And so he just sort of had to trust, um, you know, he was like, I just had to go where they told me and hit my mark is what he told me. So a couple of times. So, uh, I thought that was really interesting. He also said that, um, that the main influence that Jonah Nolan brought up to him uh, about this episode was uh, Terrence Malick, which I thought was really uh, like, as soon as he said, it, I was like, Oh, of course, of course it's Terrence Malick. A lot of like uh, no dialogue, lyricism, uh, beautiful vistas. Like that's like, you know, uh, vintage good Malick as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah. And the, and the other thing I'll say is something that uh, our lovely, brilliant listener, Raymond Terry pointed out to me, um, and I haven't had a chance to rewatch the episode since he did, but he thinks, and I will be curious to rewatch, um, that when, uh, Akichita is speaking in English, the message is meant for Anna, Maeve's daughter. And mm-hmm. when he's speaking in Lakota, the message is m- meant for Maeve. And, um, I just kind of want to watch again and see that, but it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I don't know if that, that quite okay. maps with my uh, r- uh, memory of the episode. Like, I, I do feel like he addressed the daughter in English at, at times. That's um, what I'm saying. That's exactly. Oh, what I'm okay, saying. okay, okay. Sorry, I thought you said the opposite. I thought you said for Ma- you're saying for the daughter it was in English. For Mavis Lakota, um, 
Uh, but, oh, but but um, I'm sorry. What I meant to say, was, through- yeah, he addresses the daughter in Lakota as well, as far as I remember, right? Possibly, I yeah. haven't rewatched, but I'm just saying, like, if you watch, you know, the first time you watch the episode, and I don't know how many how many times you've watched it, Dave, but like the first time you watch it, you know, like I don't think you're aware that he's talking to Maeve until the very end, correct? And so. Um, and then when I watch it back again through, like you hear a couple things he says that like you assume is for the daughter, but it's very clear. He's like, he says something like that's a promise you couldn't keep. And that he's definitely talking to Maeve and that's like two thirds of the way through the episode, you know? So they like tip their hand in the episode, but I didn't track, uh, English versus Lakota and I would be interested to go back and watch it again just to see. But uh, it was an interesting idea for Maven, but I haven't been able to double check it yet. So yeah. The other point I wanted to make about the the language was, and you know, I, I I'm just gonna say right up the top at the top, like I am not uh, an expert at you know Lakota or Native American culture. So like all the statements I make about this are from the perspective of an outsider. And if I'm uh, inaccurate in any way or insensitive in any way, please uh, do let me know. Uh, always willing to learn about stuff like this. So decodingwestworld at gmail dot com is where you can email us. One thing, I, 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 yep, go ahead. Well, I want to say that a friend of mine who is um, like uh, has native ancestry um, and loves on McLaren and like watched him in Longmire and watched him in Fargo and just like is obsessed with him uh, in a healthy way um, was so excited about this episode. And he was talking to me about it. And he was like, um, he was like, I can't think of a pop culture uh you know, thing that we've all watched that has been predominantly in a native tongue, not even like last the Mohicans. Right. Right. Um, not even smoke signals, like not even like any native thing that I can think of native based story or like I saw one called, I think it's called three sheets of the wind or maybe four sheets of the wind. Um, like I've seen a lot. They're all mostly in English. And so, uh, just to circle back to your very original point, which is I, I agree with you that it is bold yeah. for Westworld to do this. And um and it's not and I don't think it's just like performative. I think it's tied to a really interesting and well done story. You know what I mean? And um I think the same was true of Akane no Mai, so it, you know, I'm I'm amazed by it. Yeah, uh I agree completely. And the other thing I was gonna say about this is this uh, uh the way that he narrates the story and then it flashes back and uh and the way he speaks about it uh he you, you know in popular culture depictions of native american stories right the way he talked like the uh, akichita talks about it and recounts his story very much feels like in in fitting with the the tone and feel of those kinds of stories that we've seen in american pop culture um but it's completely recontextualized as the life of a host. You know what I mean? These concepts of like reincarnation or ghosts or, um, you know, people uh, vanishing and coming back as different, you know, different form. Um, these are like stories that we have heard or versions of them we've heard, but the way they're recontextualized in the context of this show uh, about robots, uh, I just thought was totally fascinating. And uh, like this kind of like, I, I, I was just like in awe of how they were able to fit in the the history of this host into a kind of broader uh, narrative that's told in Lakota 
um, anyway, I thought it was really impressive. So do you know yeah. does it makes sense what I'm saying? Like, I hope I'm conveying it correctly, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> we're just two non-native people stumbling around this topic, trying yep. not to offend anyone. But, um, Correct. the other thing that I will say is that, uh, and I, and I wrote about this on Vanity Fair, the, um, the story of Akichita traveling into the Mesa, uh, to find his wife, which is essentially like, uh, you know, a hero traveling to the underworld to find his dead wife. Uh, you know, my first immediate point of reference was the Orpheus and Eurydice myth of Greek mythology, because um, that's, um, you know, what I studied a lot growing up. But then I was like, I was like, well, let's just see, because if you study mythology at all or fairy tales at all, you know that like almost there's a version of the main ones in almost every culture. And so I was like, are there native stories that involve, and it turns out like two very popular, uh, native stories deal with exactly this story of like, Oh, a warrior going to find, uh, his dead wife traveling to, um, you know, the land of the dead to find his dead wife. And, um, I, so, so it does feel like, there's a lot of made up stuff and, and, and Zon McLaren had told me the same thing that, um, you know, we heard from, um, Hiroyuki Sonata on the Akane no Mai episode, which is like, okay, these are non-white characters, you know, these are samurai or these are native, uh, people as created by white people. So right. there is like a, a forgiveness there of like, uh, well, if there are inaccuracies, it's because Lee Sizemore wrote this role or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Um, well, they even have a conversation in this episode, you know, they're, they're saying like, Oh, we, we got to make him more savage or less, less like a person because we want people to feel less guilty when they kill him, you know, or something like that. Right. Yeah. Right. But, um, but all that being said, like, I think you're right um, that they really did do their homework when it came to not just the language, but linking the themes of the story or linking the bones of the story to native culture, native beliefs and that sort of thing. So, And yep. I should say, like, I think overall, uh, you, you are we, we are not reading a ton of uh, online pieces about like all the cultural appropriation going on in Westworld. Uh, and I think that's a combination of a lot of things. One of them is that uh, they do seem to have done the work. You know, jo- Joanna, you and I were texting about it, and you were like, I think they did the work. And I, I agree. They they ha- seem to have done a lot of work, in put a lot of work into getting it right, uh, consulting with people who are familiar with these cultures to make sure that they were rendered with as much sensitivity as possible in the context of this fictional narrative. Uh, and, and number two, I think they've just been really savvy from a PR perspective. You know, uh, all the actors that are in all these ep- episodes are, you know, uh, doing PR for the show. And uh, I, I just feel like it's been a really uh, impressive display by HBO on how to, like, tell these stories and do so in a way that's sensitive and um, and kind of make sure, like, everyone understands uh, the work that was put into them. So uh, props to them for that. All right, Joanna, a lot more to discuss in this episode. But before we do that, uh, we got to thank a few people who contributed to our Kickstarter that made this podcast possible. Uh, Joanna, I think you have a couple names, right? I do. I do. And I'm definitely ready to read them right this very second and not at all stalling for time. Okay. (laughs) We want to thank Ivan Morales and Bobby Eels. And I want to thank Blake Ofstedal. Blake Ofstedal? Anyway, those are the only names that we have left as far as I understand. Uh, So first of all, thank you so much to those people for contributing. Uh, The only reason this podcast exists is because of people such as yourself who donated and made it possible. So thanks to all of our Kickstarter backers. I think that's all the names. 
I think that's all the names. If for some reason we did not read your name, like, and you contributed to that tier, let us know at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. I have a record of every single name that was read in every episode of the show, and so I can go back and check. But uh, I'm pretty sure that's everyone. If we did not get to your name, let me know, and we will definitely make that right uh, by the time the show is done. So, uh, okay. So let's continue with this episode of Westworld, uh, Joanna. Um, a few other developments. Uh, so you were talking about how uh, Akichita goes to, like, the, is the valley beyond, like, that's what you conceive of as the land of the dead? Is, are, we, are those the same thing? No, I would say the land of the dead is the mesa, the, the cold storage. Right, yep. Right? And then the valley beyond is, like, the door. I think the valley beyond and the door are the same thing. Gotcha. The door leading to... Don't know yet. Don't know yet, right? Okay. <laughs> right. But he sees, he goes and he sees that, like, valley that um, William was digging that he showed Dolores back in episode four. Um, so he sees it and it looks to me like there's massive servers there. So I think the idea is that uh, this is like the cradle, but times a million. Um, and it's where all the human consciousness is stored. Mm. Uh, that they've captured over the years. And so um, in in the current timeline, it is underwater. But when he sees it, you know, they're just like putting this huge server farm in right. in the desert, basically, when he finds it. So, uh, Art imitating life again, by the way. Did you hear that Microsoft had uh, like created this massive server that's underwater this week? Like that was in the news that they have this major server farm uh underwater called project natick i believe um wow. so they are they are in microsoft now operating a server under the sea um in it's about 100 feet below the surface of the north sea near the united kingdom's orkney islands fully powered by renewable energy so yeah uh quite a coincidence i guess microsoft has appropriated westworld as a viral marketing campaign for a <laughs> server farm uh okay but, uh, you know, Joanna, to uh, go back to something that you were talking about earlier, I do think that this season is trying – and, you know, we're talking about the land of the dead and, and, uh, and those parts of this narrative. I do think this season is trying to make a broader point about the persistence of narratives across cultures and humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's like, oh, hey, Westworld has these narratives and the, the gunslinger and, you know, the frontier. And then we see in uh, Shogun World that, but by the way, there are these samurai and ronin who wander the wilderness and so on and so forth and, and fight for honor. And um, in uh, this episode, Kiksuya, there's kind of like similar elements of uh, – or, or at least – Elements that can be brought to life by the park uh, that are infused in uh, in Akichita's recollection. Uh, yeah. And so I feel like there's this kind of broader point that the show is making quite effectively uh, about narrative and the stories we tell each other. Um, what do you What do you make of that? Do you Do you feel like uh, the show is doing that to good effect? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it can do it even a little bit more explicitly. Like, I think it'd be really fun. Someone was talking about, I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast, but someone was talking about how they would love to see the Mariposa Heist maybe, like, whatever that version would be in the Raj. Mm. Um, and then they wouldn't even went as far as to say, like, they wanted Naveen Andrews from Lost to play the, the Hector role. Because um, then you'd have three actors who were on Lost play the same role. But nice. um, That would be cool. But, <laughs> but to see um, a story reflected, refracted 
through the culture um, that, you know, is telling it. I always thought that was so interesting in terms of like if you read five different versions of, of the Cinderella story and you read it uh, in China and you read it in France and you read it, you know, like it's interesting to see what little things are different and what, what little things are the same. And um, I think that that's something that Westworld could do even more dramatically. Um when I talked to Hiroyuki Sanada about Akane no Mai, he said he thought that the – I think Westworld the show has backed its in, itself into a corner because I think it has said how many parks it has. And I can't remember what it is, but it's like seven or nine. People are going to yell at me about that. Um, but in theory, he was like – that actor was like the options are limited, like unlimited in terms of the kind of story they could tell. Like this idea of, of leaving the park – which is what Delaware seems to want to do is so uninteresting to me because I want to stay in the park and keep like seeing these stories weave themselves uh, through different cultures. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I I believe it is actually six parks. If I recall correctly, like they have, uh, there's one point at which the character Stubbs, I think says like, Oh, it's in part the, the Bengal tiger is from park six. So that means there's at least six, I don't know that there's been an upper limit on six, though. Do you remember any of that? Like anyone saying, there's only six parks in this whole place. You know, we got to find them somewhere. You know, has anyone said anything like that? I don't think so, right? Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm like trying to Google right now as you're asking me. Yeah, I don't think, I, don't, I think it's six parks. I think. Do you think it's like, do you think it's, so you think it's at least yeah, six Yeah, I believe parks. it is at least six parks. Right, okay. That is my understanding. So, okay. um, Prove us wrong, listeners. Prove us wrong. Me specifically. Me specifically. Because uh, <laughs> I think Joanna gets enough tweets about Westworld. So, uh, okay. Uh, so just a few other plot developments we got we to gotta run through for this episode. Um, one of them is we find out what happens with the man in black. Uh, his daughter shows up and uh, mm-hmm. picks him up. And she's none too happy that he abandoned her despite making that agreement. Right? Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to say about this uh, sequence? I think that w- 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 like his fate and her fate are unknown at this point. Yeah, I'm just glad to see Emily back. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. I like her so much. So yeah, yeah. she's pretty awesome, and apparently uh, knows how to speak uh, the Lakota language, which I thought was pretty impressive. We already well, we already knew that about her when she was like first taken by Ghost Nation. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. Weird, no, good point. Yeah, but like, but what? But it is like a good reminder because what she says at the time, I think Stubb says like, "Oh, you speak the language," you know, because like this episode opens with Willie and the Man in Black saying, "I don't speak your language," whatever it is Ford programmed into you, you know, yeah, um, like a shitty white dude, and um. and then she bothered to speak the language, and Stubbs, I believe, said to her back in episode. I don't know what, whatever that was for. Um, like, Oh, you speak the language. Like, you know, most people don't bother. And she's like, I don't like most people, you know? And what that helps explain is how ghost nation is able to operate on off the radar for a lot of this episode. If like most of the employees don't even bother to Mm. like understand the language they're speaking, you know, and they're just ignored and looked over and underestimated, uh, that helps, uh, maybe, maybe soften some of the uh, the nits you might want to pick about uh, how they're given free range to do certain things. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about that. I mean, there, <laughs> there was a story that came out in uh, August of 2017 
uh, about fi- like Facebook had developed this artificial intelligence program. Uh, this is a true story, and the artificial intelligence program it started uh, communicating with itself in a shorthand language that Facebook did not explicitly program. Right, so it started communicating it with itself in a way that uh, they, they did not understand. And their immediate re- like this this program wasn't going to do any damage to anyone. It wasn't going to like uh, wasn't going to kill anyone. It wasn't going to like invade robots and have you know. Uh, and their immediate reaction was to shut that program down. Like completely. Pre- this, this is 2017. So this is like a year ago that this happened. Um, theoretically, Westworld has happened like decades in the future. So the yeah. idea that you'd have like these. Uh, people running around speaking this language that the employees can't understand or, uh, you know, seems pretty far-fetched to me. But but anyway, uh, <laughs> at least the show tried to explain it. At least the show tried to explain it. So a uh, couple of other notable things that happened this episode. Uh, Sizemore is interacting with Maeve because they're trying to, like, get the code out of Maeve, but, like, the tech that's in there is pretty heartless, and he's just like, let's just – who cares what happens to her? And right. Sizemore has this moment where he kind of breaks down and he's really upset at what's happening to Maeve. Uh, and a lot of people were moved by this scene. What did you think of this scene with Sizemore and Maeve? You deserve your daughter. To mother her. Teach her to love. To be joyful and proud. I'm sorry. Can't be in here. What the fuck happened? You were supposed to fix her. She's one of our most valuable assets. You saw it yourself. You said she was special. The anomalous code inside her was. We're still testing, but it looks promising. I owe you. Yeah, so I talked to Simon Corderman early in the season, and he, I don't mean to keep saying, like, whoa, when I talked to so and so, but like when oh, I talked to all these names you're, I'm, all these names you're dropping everywhere, yeah, Joanna. It's yeah. crazy. These, I got to pick up these names on the ground because you're dropping A-list them. stars of Westworld. Um, yeah. I, when I was talking to him, he was, he sort of hinted, he's like, well, maybe there's going to be like another man underneath uh, that we haven't seen, that we haven't met yet, mm. which I thought was like a fun, it, when he said that to me as an actor, I thought that, that felt like a fun reflection of um, something that Logan says to William, where he says, um, you know, back in season one, he was like, you know, the park is a way of revealing your true self and I can't fucking wait to meet that guy or whatever. So it's sort of like that has also happened to Sizemore, except it's revealed like he's the photocopy opposite of uh photo negative, sorry, I should say, of William where it reveals like this good man lurking underneath this really shitty man uh, in theory. So I, I, some people are moved by it. Some people are like, give me a break, Sizemore. Like you could have saved you're, – you're the one who got her into this mess yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah. But um, the, By thought, the way, that dismissive impression you did, that's me basically. <laughs> cool, cool. But um, I thought his performance was really good and I, I like this idea of the park revealing – goodness because we haven't seen necessarily yeah. a lot of that from the humans the park uncovering their good side so i, I, I agree i agree yeah. I, I think um i don't think it was like way out of character i wasn't like oh my gosh like that's unbelievable that sizemore would do that and how dare the show insult our intelligence by depicting it that way i i don't think that that's the case i do think we could have used a little bit more of the sizemore mave interaction because yeah he did call the cops on her you know, he did get her into this situation. 
like, what is it that's driving him to regret his decisions? Uh, I just wish I had gotten like 10 to 20% more uh, of an understanding of Sizemore's emotional state and motivations leading up to that point. And then I would have felt pretty good about it. But mm-hmm. it's, it was not the worst thing in the world. It, it just felt like, um, I, I, you know, there are big moments, big character emotional moments that are going to test the audience. And, right, the, the test is, do you buy that this character would behave in this way at this critical moment? Uh, and for me, it was like not quite, almost, but not quite. Um, so uh, this is definitely one of those moments where I feel like a lot is building up to this. This is a misbegotten symbol, an idea that it was meant to die, but you found it. Where? Oh, come now, let's speak plainly to one another, shall we? Analysis. Where did you first see this? When the Deathbringer killed the Creator. You've been sharing it with everyone, haven't you? Why? My primary drive was to maintain the honor of my tribe. I gave myself a new drive. To spread the truth. What truth is that? That there isn't one world, but many. And that we live in the wrong one. Towards the end of this episode, we also see Ford and Akichita have an interaction, right? Uh, Which is crazy. Like, I I guess I, uh, you know, there was still the possibility for me that the Anthony Hopkins stuff was just a walk-on cameo kind of thing this season. But they got him to do, like, substantial scenes in this season. Uh, And this is in the form of a flashback, right, Uh, that I guess is not too far in the past from present day because Anthony Hopkins looks the way he does. Um, What did you think of the scene between Ford and and, uh, Akichita? Uh, I thought it was stunning. I mean, first of all, visually, like the tableau was amazing. Um, And then what I like about this scene, um, first of all, the the way in which Akichita talks about Dolores, Arnold being the creator, like when when the when the Deathbringer killed the creator. Like that sentence, I was like, Jesus. This is so good. It's so elemental, yes. you know. Um, and um, you know, uh, so him him uh, characterizing Dolores as as Deathbringer uh, is incredible, I think. And then um, Zahn also told me that in this uh, in this scene, like he came into the scene prepared to do freeze all motor functions the way that everyone has done freeze all motor functions on this show. Yeah. Um, or analysis mode the way that everyone has and they directed him to do something different which is fight against it in a way that the other hosts don't and I thought that was an interesting reveal it's just sort of like he does have and always has had a little more free will than anyone else um, and so and I think Zon really conveys that if you if you watch it again knowing that like watching his eyes sort of dart back and forth as he's holding as still as possible I just I think it's I think it's incredible. Like I I just really loved it. What did you think? Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was very good. And one of the ideas that um this show plays with and I think we've talked about it in a past episode is like a very similar to uh what Alien Covenant ta- uh, does, right? Do we talk about oh. this, right? 
Uh, maybe. Uh, like the, the opening, yeah, I'll hit you. So, so sorry if I've said this already like six episodes ago or something, but in the opening scene of Alien Covenant direct, uh, directed by Ridley yeah. Scott, yeah. um, is basically an android, David, played by Michael yeah. Fassbender being born. And he realizes during the course of that scene, the opening scene of Alien Covenant, that, um, he is superior than his creator. Right, and that he he has already simply by existing, he has surpassed his creator, and one day will outlive his creator. And I just think that's completely fascinating. This idea that humans can create something that will surpass and outlive us, um, and that's something that this show has been playing with all season. Um, and I think it also comes to life in this episode, right, when Akishita comes face to face with Ford, and they're talking about the Deathbringer and this idea that. Um, something can kill the creator, uh, you know, is uh, as someone who grew up in a Christian church, like it's a very kind of shocking and profound thought that like uh, that's, you know, humanity killing God has been a thing that's um, that, that concept, that thought has been around for hundreds of years. Um, but I think the show brings it to life really well. And in a very like the way that it's able to fit these big philosophical ideas into this sci-fi concept, all while, as you said, visually uh, creating these stunning tableaus and and loading them with the symbolism, you know, uh, I think is is really well done. So. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who actually listens to the show, Thomas, and he was telling he's um, like very, uh, you know, very Christian. And he was talking to me about how he felt. You know, we've been talking all all season about um, Messiah figures, and obviously, like we talked about Dolores, we talked about Maeve. Obviously, Akichita exists as another sort of option as a Messiah role um, in this episode. And this notion of him, you know, he talks to Ford about this, of him expanding his tribe beyond the Ghost Nation tribe to include everyone in the park. Um, like my that that friend of mine said that he thought it was like this is Westworld's most Christian, most spiritual episode. That this cues closely to what he feels like is the truth of Christianity, which is... Um, like uh, protective and well, sorry, I don't want to misrepresent what he thinks, but this idea of leading, leading your people, that's both old Testament and new, um, which I think is interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. Agreed completely. Uh, go ahead. You're going to say something. Well, I, I did want to talk really quickly about the Mesa scene. I don't think we talked about that yet. And I don't know if we had it on the docket, but just um, his tour of the Mesa, were we going to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it's an obvious like callback to season one and Maeve's tour, which I thought was one of the most stunning things that happened in season one. Um, Maeve's tour set to Radiohead. This is Nirvana's heart shaped box instead. And I like, you know, this is definitely where you, Dave, get to pick nits and talk about where was Della security. And also it, I, if, I agree with anyone who says it, it makes no sense that that Della's employee comes in and says, oh, he hasn't been upgraded in a while. Well, uh, just put him back in the park. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, why would you do that? Um, no, well, they, and, uh, they, they, hold on, let's be clear. Like, they start the upgrade process. Sure. And then for some reason, it doesn't take, like, he's not being upgraded. He just is, yeah. has his full faculties. He wanders around, he comes back, and presumably the upgrade has not occurred, but they just put him back anyway, right? Is that, that's well, but she says, it. she's like, oh, he hasn't been upgraded in forever? Well, shit, let's not report him. Let's just upgrade him. Let's fix him and put him back in the park. 
Right. right. But that was before he wandered off, if, if I recall correctly. Absolutely right. Yeah. But what I'm just saying is, like, that's a terrible <laughs> reaction. <laughs> like, last season when, when Sylvester fucked up with Maeve, his idea was to brick her and put her in cold storage to yeah. hide his mistake. Like, that's how you hide a mistake, right? You don't just put your mistake back out in the park, uh, which is what they do with him eventually. But, yeah, before they do that, uh, he wanders around the mesa um, silently. I think just even like the vision of him on an escalator, the incongruous vision of him on an escalator. Cause like Maeve was walking around, um, uh, naked or in a nightgown. Like, you know, she wasn't in anything that looked like super anachronistic, but him like, you know, in his ghost, na- full ghost nation, like paint on the escalator going to find his wife and the love story in this episode. <laughs> some people are like, some people, uh, I, I ran afoul of the Deadpool fans by getting mad about uh, a concept called fridging that mm. happens um, in Deadpool 2. Uh, spoiler alert for the beginning of De- very beginning of Deadpool 2. But, um, but the, his wife is put literally in a fridge in this episode. Mm-hmm. Didn't bother me at all. Mm. I don't know why. Didn't bother me. And I found it profoundly affecting when he finds her, when he starts weeping. Um, I mean, the t- moment when he brings back, like, the ponytail of that uh, yeah. son to the mom and the mom, like, breaks down in tears, yeah. that that was the moment that, like, emotionally walloped me because this idea that, like, this person that you love uh, still exists or is somewhere in the world um, and that all these, like, crazy things that you believed or were, were told – or was programmed into you in this case uh, are not true that you know that the son is not gone and dead and away like or that he did exist at one point and uh, extremely profound moment right so yeah well yeah and for me it was uh, that moment for me was him sort of breaking down in the mesa and um, like to find her so unresponsive. Um, but something we should say is that cold storage has now been emptied into the park. You know, like Abernathy was in cold storage. So it's possible that Kona, that character played by the great Julia Jones, uh, is out in the park somewhere. Mm. Uh, one other thing I want to mention about that scene is the heart-shaped box uh, arrangement is actually different than the one that was played in a teaser trailer for Westworld Season 2. Uh-huh. Um, it was an all-piano arrangement. It almost sounded uh-huh. like it was, like, improvised. Like, it, it was very um, loose in terms of how it was played. Like, it sounded like it was almost improvised uh, uh, on the spot, on piano. Uh, so uh, my guess is maybe Ramin Javadi played it himself. I've seen him play piano live before, so uh, it could totally be him. I don't know for sure. Uh, but uh-huh. it is a different version of that song than the one that's in the... Uh, uh, in the season two trailer, it's much more plaintive and just one piano instead of having this huge orchestra. Uh, yeah. So I'm curious if we will hear the orchestra version at some point this season. So uh, anyway, and uh, the episode closes with uh, the revelation that Maeve has been communicating with Akisha this entire time, right? They're talking about how she's like sending commands uh, or, or interacting with them on this uh, on this mesh network, um, there's this moment. I'm gonna I'm gonna um, 
I'm going to talk, like, read from the script. They say, like, she was out there reprogramming hosts on the fly, reading their code, changing their directives, seeing through their eyes. She wasn't just doing it out there. She's doing it right now. It was exactly – that's an exact performance, by the way. So, uh, And then the question was, the fuck is she talking to? And then you kind of understand that she's talking with Akichita. One question I had was, do you think she was doing other things other than talking to Akichita? Or is the implication just that she was talking to Akichita? What do you think? I mean, the main implication is that she's talking to Akichita, but like you'd never underestimate what Maeve can accomplish laying there with her throat open yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and her musculature sort of throbbing. Um on on a gurney and uh, never underestimate what Maeve can accomplish there. But yeah, um, uh, the reveal, I mean, it's just such like a beautiful, amazing episode. And then like the reveal at the end, we were like, holy shit, he was talking to her the whole time. Yeah, and, I know. Like, you know, I, I don't usually get got by stuff like that, but I, <laughs> I got got. You got so, got. Yeah. You got yeah, got. I did. Yeah, I did. Um, me too. Me too. I, and it's kind of like, oh, okay, okay. So I think a lot of people have asked, like, why, like, why is Maeve talking with this guy, or why is why is Akichita talking to Maeve? Like, what is what is the purpose of that? Right. I guess the purpose is like that he is with her daughter, right, and is reassuring. Like, this is a guy that's taking care of Maeve and her daughter a lot, uh, and the purpose is that like. You now, you know, he's reassuring her that the daughter is safe and so on, right? I think that's like one purpose. And then, like, yeah, in the yeah. meantime, mm-hmm. he's filling her in on all the stuff that's happened. Uh, we should also mention that this does explain, like, that uh, all those flashbacks where Ghost Nation is looking menacingly in the window, they're actually protecting Maeve and the daughter, right? That's the implication <laughs> yeah. here, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, which I thought it was kind of a. Uh, a profound uh, point that I was making. It's, it, he said something like, "Sometimes things can be misunderstood" or something like that. Uh, I thought it was really. That's like one. Of, I think there's so much kindness and empathy from Akichita in this episode. Like the way that very tender way he treats Anna, um, Maeve's daughter. Um, but that line I, sticks out to me as the most kind and empathetic, where he says. Um, you know what does he say like you miss and intentions are easily misunderstood in a world like this or something like yeah, that it was just sort like of that, like yeah. it was beautiful i thought it was just sort of like it, i don't blame you for yeah. being scared so yeah yeah and, uh, it's particularly relevant in uh, in today's world in in the united states particularly where uh, intentions often are misunderstood so uh, I, I thought it was a profound point that is is very relevant to our moment as well okay so I think we've spent about an hour talking <laughs> yeah. about why this episode's amazing. Okay. Oh, uh, okay. An hour talking about why this episode's amazing. Uh, and before we move, I, I kind of want to talk about the, how this episode fits into like broader uh, narrative of the show. But like uh, anything else that we missed that you think we should mention uh, that happened in this episode? Any other like plot developments? I don't think so. Right. I think that that covers a lot of it. Yeah. Um, we but might have missed something, guys, but might have missed something. <laughs> we, might have missed we something. tried. Yeah. Decodingwestworld at gmail.com is where <laughs> you'll want to uh, email about that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think those are, those are the most of the main points. So, uh, uh, okay. A lot of people love this episode. A lot of people uh, thought it was one of the best episodes of the entire show. Um, there have been some complaints about the episode. And. I'm kind of curious how sympathetic you are to some of these complaints. 
I I think probably the biggest complaint that I could think of that I that I kind of had this react like as I was watching this. Uh, I'll tell you my experience of watching this episode, Jenna. I was thinking to myself, "Oh, oh, like they're, we're going to have this like brief flashback of the ghost station before the show gets back on schedule and tells us like." You know, moves the plot along uh, for every other character because we were left on kind of a cliffhanger last week. And then slowly the realization dawned on me that this entire episode is going to be about this character. And I kind of felt like, oh, well, that's like kind of frustrating that the the entire plot of the show is grinding to a halt uh, to kind of address this character's history and not really move the plot along in any major way. Uh, but then the episode was so well done that it didn't. But like I was like, okay, yeah, like that was a massive digression, but it was worth it because you told this amazing story and you told it really well and you told it with a lot of heart and sensitivity and it moved me deeply. Uh, And so that didn't really bother me as much uh, because it's like, okay, that's fine. But I do think it's worth considering, you know, that this is one of the best episodes of the season and it's also the episode that had the fewest kind of uh time twistiness plot contrivances things left purposely opaque kind of thing like it's also the episode that it's just, uh, i think a lot of people have been t- talking about it in different ways Seppin wall is like this is what happens when they write like an episode um meaning there's a beginning middle and end and it moves the plot along a little bit but not that much um but there's like a character whose arc you can emotionally attach to what do you what do you think of that, Joanna? What do you think of this this idea that, um, or, or 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 this complaint that like this episode is great, but it also shows some of Westworld's biggest weaknesses this season, which is its lack of straightforward storytelling. Um, I don't think this episode fits into lack of straightforward storytelling at all. Uh, how sympathetic am I to complaints about this episode? Zero. <laughs> 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 uh zero i am zero sympathetic um one percent sympathetic maybe okay. i i don't mind at all not like putting a pause on bernard and dolores and stuff like that because like we all know that dolores has been frustrating me and like i actually i actually think this this episode points to her being more of a villain than ever before to be honest with you but um like <laughs> yeah because, she's like the t- she's like terrorizing all these people right she's the deathbringer and yeah. he says akicha just says this thing he says we have to go to the door like before the deathbringer ends us all yeah like that's what he says like she's the villain and and you know this question of like what do you do with wokeness once you have it and akicha is doing one thing and dolores is doing another thing the lack of empathy from dolores we well we've seen flashes of empathy but a large lack of empathy anyway so i wasn't that bum to give Dolores a rest this week. Um, I don't, I don't care that this, I don't think this episode didn't advance anything. It advanced our understanding of the world so much that, um, the fact that we didn't like get, you know, five steps forward from Dolores or Bernard, uh, in this episode bothered me zero. So that's fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I think that's entirely reasonable reaction, but what about the, like, do you, when you watch this episode, you know, where you think to yourself, hey, this episode is awesome. I wish the rest of the show was like this. Because that was kind of my reaction was like uh, when you tell us a story that is actually comprehensible, that contains a twist, but like a twist that 
by the end of the episode, you know basically what the twist is. You know, like you, you understand the fullness of the twist, which is like they've been talking to each other the whole time. Um, that the storytelling is actually more impactful uh, sometimes when you don't conceal a lot from the audience. Um, yeah, no, I agree. Okay, well, yeah, I, I agree with that. I agree that, like, you know, if that's Alan's point, that, like, this is this is what Westbrook can you do well here's here's what I'll say to put um like a better a better spin on it a more positive spin on it I would like the knowledge to take away the positive reaction to the, from this episode to have the confidence to to break a little bit from their addiction to obfuscation yeah and know that they can just tell a straightforward story with emotionality with uh rich cultural notes with all this sort of stuff and the majority of the people will lap it up uh, and not be – you don't need to confuse us yeah. to yeah, yeah, entertain yeah. and engross us, you know? Agreed 100%. Yeah. By the way, Alan's tweet reads as follows, quote, Look what happens when an intensely serialized drama decides to craft an actual and distinct episode, folks, end quote. And he links to his uh, review which in which he calls it the single best episode to date. I also really appreciated Alison Herman's take on this episode. Um, where she writes at TheRinger.com, With two episodes left in the season, the limitations of Westworld storytelling seem to have ossified, even as the show continues to deliver occasional flashes of excitement. Uh, Questions from season one have been replaced by yet more questions. Protracted mysteries, delayed reveals, and fractured narratives aren't temporary interest drivers. They are permanent parts of Westworld, the show, and they handicap its potential as a drama uh, rather than a scavenger hunt, end quote. Um, and yeah, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for this. Uh, I think this perspective. something something that that uh, Richard Lawson said on our other podcast, I believe it was Richard who said it, was that Westworld is at its best when it remembers the best lessons of Lost, the TV show, show Lost, which is that you can have a mystery box that is that can be satisfying as long as you pin it to character. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times in Westworld or sometimes in Westworld, they lose track of the character in pursuit of, of, of mystery and confusion. But in an episode like this, which doesn't have any confusion, but is pegged to a character or the episode like the Jim Delos episode, which I feel like is pegged to the Jim Delos character, you know, um, I think that uh, like if Westworld can do more of that when it gets really human, when you've got like. Um, uh, Trump Loy, which is uh, Bernard killing Teresa, like these these character moments, some of the young William and Dolores stuff, these character stuff, that is what we're really going to stick around for. I mean, it's my same complaint that I have sometimes with Game of Thrones, which is like in the latter seasons, I feel like character gets um, swallowed up by spectacle. And in Westworld, I feel like sometimes character gets swallowed up by, uh, you know, confusion and timey-wimey whateverness and so like i think that the best example that they can pull is what they've done with mave throughout which i think has always been a grossing because it's always uh just linked really hard to her character and when it's not doing that then i get frustrated and sometimes a little bored with westworld it's true yeah i I think that's a great way of putting it um that sometimes it's it's seems more concerned with the plot machinations than with character. But in the show's defense, here's what is amazing about the show, Joanna, is you can tune into this show 
on a Sunday night and you have no idea what the heck is going to happen, right? Like what, not even what plot developments are going to happen, but what kind of show you're going to watch. And that is extremely exciting. You know, uh, there's very few shows on TV that can deliver that experience. Uh, and I think Westworld does it really well. I mean, we've had three episodes this season, I feel, uh, that are just very, very strong. And, um, but, but a lot of it does feel like it comes from an anthology show. You know what I mean? Like, like that these are really, I'm talking about episodes four or five and then this most recent one, eight, you know, they are like really distinct stories that, um, play off these very fascinating sci-fi concepts that have been introduced in the show uh, and that kind of inhabit this world in a really interesting way. Uh, so I, I think we're in agreement here that this is a great episode of the show, um, but that the show as a whole could uh, learn some episodes. Uh, I'm sorry, learn some lessons, I should say, yeah. um, from uh, the response to this episode and uh, and challenge, you know, the creators could challenge themselves to like, Tell a story more straightforward. Like, trust that the audience is going to be into it even without the sleight of hand and the tricks. Um, well, so. that and also just be bold and experimental that that's allowed too. Because, like, um, not that they haven't been, like, experimental, but be but just be experimental in the way that this episode is experimental. And it's how I feel about uh, the leftover season one versus the leftover season two and three, where two and three, I just feel like Lindelof was just like more feeling himself in a way. And more, more I, confident in the decision. Yeah. So. Yeah. Confident in his decisions, not as hamstrung to linear storytelling. And I know we're talking about nonlinear storytelling when it comes to Westworld, but I just, yeah, if they could do more stuff like <laughs> a kind of my, or I don't remember the name. I keep calling it the Jim Delos episode. Or uh, Kiksuya, that's what I would love to see in season three. I, I hope that that's what we get in season three. Uh, so I did get an email from a listener. Let's see. Um, uh, Jacqueline. Jacqueline S. who wrote into decodingwestworld.gmail.com. You know, uh, we were complaining a little bit about the fractured narrative last week. And by we, I mean I, I think. Um, but possibly you as well. Uh, and... Jacqueline writes, at the beginning of the podcast last week, you guys talked about how confusing it can be for the viewer that the multiple timelines aren't marked by any sort of color palettes, aspect ratio, etc. My thought was that this is always by design. One of the recurring themes of the show is that the hosts have difficulty experiencing memories in time before they wake up because they experience memories in reality as if they are happening to them at the same time, like Dolores last season or Bernard with Elsie in season four. Our experience of watching Westworld as a viewer mimics the host's experience of time and memory. Imagine how confusing it must be for a host to not be oriented in time if it's this confusing for us watching and we aren't even inside the story. I hope I'm not giving too much credit to the creators, but I've always liked feeling the slight disorientation with the timelines because it's kind of like we are hosts in the story. Thanks for reading. Can't wait for this week's episode. That's from Jacqueline. Uh, who writes into decodingwestworld.gmail.com. That is an extremely uh, charitable reading of the confusion uh, that people might experience watching the show. I, I, I don't know. I think that there are ways to where uh, confusion can be used to further the storytelling and ways that uh, the confusion hinders the storytelling. And I think sometimes uh, the show ventures far more into the latter. Um, and also... The show already kind of used that trick in season one. You know, um, Dolores is trying to remember what's going on. And so she's experiencing these two narratives, as a, these two timelines as though they're happening at the same time. And, um, and 
the understanding and revelation that it's all happening at the same time hits us the same time as it hits Dolores and it's this, this amazing revelatory moment for us for, for us and for her and, and like the audience is kind of in her mindset and so that's the situation where I think like the audience being confused actually helps the storytelling but you, you can only in my opinion you cannot keep using that as like you can, you can only go to that well so many times before you're simply just obfuscating what's happening with the plot what do you think of that Jenna? Um, yeah, I, I, like, I, I don't know, but there is a part, I mean, this is called decoding Westworld. (laughs) There's a part of this that's been fun for us too, the guessing and the theorizing. And so I don't want to like advocate that it completely abandoned that. Um, but I think whereas they had an interesting kind of plan in season one with the timeline reveal, this I this season I think they had to work even harder to try to fool us uh, yeah. because we were like on high alert. I mean I talked about this before in terms of um, last season when I was like, okay, the Nolans love to do this and um, tricky, timey reveals and twists and stuff like that. But usually they do it over the span of a feature film. Yep. And so when you've got two hours or less than two hours or more than two hours, um, you know you're uh, you're like you can get sucked in and and fooled by a twist or taken by a reveal. Um, when you have to do it over the span of ten hours, as they did in season one, the bar is higher for fooling us, especially when we have got Reddit like on on their asses every minute, being like that that logo looks old. Um, and then you come to season two when we're all on high alert. For some fuckery, and they're like, "Okay, let's make it as really confusing as possible." Right. So they have to listen to multiple podcasts, and you know, read timelines and read recaps in order to know what the fuck is going on at any given time. And it's fun for people. It's like it's fun for some people. It's an intellectual exercise. But I do think it can get away in in the way sometimes of something that they are quite capable of, which is really profoundly great storytelling, as we saw this week. So agreed. All right. Yeah. Any other thoughts on the episode? It, it's an episode we all really uh, loved and is a huge achievement in the history of the series. So um, I would love a um, – I don't know how the – and I should know because I'm supposed to be an awards expert. But I don't know how the distinction between guest star and recurring and like uh, whatever. But if Zon McLaren right? could – Yeah, regular. If, if Zon McLaren could pull a guest star Emmy uh, out for this season of Westworld, I would give it to him. Um, also want to say that a bunch of listeners pointed out to me, I, I sort of referenced the lost episode called the constant, which is my favorite lost episode. But a lot of people pointed out to me before we recorded that the the better parallel is one called ab eterno, which is the backstory of Richard Alpert, um, and how he interacts with the entire history of the show. And that's from season six. Uh, of course that is a better parallel. You guys nailed it. Nestor Carbonell is Akichita. Yes. Um, so the last parallels continue. Mm. Um, and I hope we get more Julia Jones by some miracle. And I hope we get much more like Zama McLaren is now like Akichita is now probably my second favorite character after Maeve. He's rocketed in, to the top of the power the span rankings. Span of an episode. Yeah, yeah. In the span of one episode. Yeah. Um, which is both a testament to how awesome this episode is and how weak some of the rest of the season is, I would say. But um, <laughs> gotta find <laughs> gotta, the negative. Gotta get that. Gotta get that dig in there. Gotta get yeah, that yeah, dig yeah. in there. Anyway, 
so yeah, I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Decoding Westworld. Uh, a few episodes remain. We got season uh, two, episode nine and ten. We're going to recap. We also have a bonus episode we're going to record after that. Um, but yeah, we are uh, entering the end game here. Um, find more episodes of this podcast at decodingwestworld.com. Email us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. Joanna Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, you can find me on vanityfair.com. You can find that Zon McLaren interview on the podcast Still Watching Colin Westworld. Uh, and you find me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. Find me at Dave Chensky on Twitter. That's Dave Chen SKY. And on YouTube, youtube.com slash Dave Chen SKY. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 